Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. It's impossible to understand the kingdom of God or Jesus without having a grasp of the history-changing promises God made with Abraham and David. To Abraham, God covenanted the land, and to David, a descendant to rule that land. Ultimately, these two covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. This is Lecture 2 of the Kingdom of God class called Kingdom Covenants originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Lecture two, Kingdom Covenants. We're going to look at Abraham and David. Please turn to Genesis chapter 12, where we're going to start looking at Abraham. And I guess the question to start with is, what is a covenant? So I have a definition here for you. You don't have to write it all down. Uh, You could just write down a solemn promise. (laughs) But uh, this is a a full definition. It's uh, barit, which means an agreement, an alliance, a covenant, a pact. And then they have this example, the brit milah, which is the covenant of circumcision, is a Jewish religious Male circumcision ceremony performed by a mole on the eighth day of the male infant's life. That's from Wikipedia. Wikipedia knows everything, so there you have it. In uh, Greek, it's the word diadiki, which you know means a will or a covenant or a contract. And uh, it's also part of the name for New Testament. It's really New Covenant, but uh, for historical reasons... They translate it testament. So covenant is a big deal. It's basically an agreement, a promise, a contract, a commitment of some sort. And where do we have covenants in our society today? Does anybody know? There's a lot. A marriage contract. Marriage covenant, yeah. A lot of legal things. Yeah. Yeah. There are homeowner associations where you have to sign a covenant to do certain things. Some airports will have businesses sign covenants around them that they won't build their structures too tall you know for obvious reasons you don't want the plane to hit into them Uh, so a covenant is 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 more or less like a contract or a verbal promise and to start off we're going to look at genesis chapter 12 probably a well-known text to you but really there's no way to cover this subject without actually looking at some of these verses. And, and, and they are really great. I, I, try, I hope I can make them live for you a little bit. But uh, Genesis chapter 12, God says uh, in verse 1, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went. That's the important part. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. God says what? He's going to bless him. He's going to make his name great. He's going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Another way to say that is he's got his back. I got your back, man. Right? And then he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. I wonder if you ever took the time to ask yourself or to ponder how unreasonable God's request is to Abraham. I mean, if you're however old, what is he, 75 years old here? He's, he's really old. And he's been living in this place, Ur of the Chaldees, which was more of a sophisticated place than the place God's asking him to go live in a tent, basically go camping when you're 75. And, you know, is it really reasonable to ask somebody like that to just abandon everything, leave everything behind and go? And yet Abraham goes. 
Because God doesn't just say, hey, go move. He says, go move and I will bless you. I will make you great. I will make you a great nation. And, and Abraham, for whatever reason, is a believer. And he is the father of faith and a very impressive person. And so what we see in verse 5 is that he takes Sarah, right? Or Sarai, as she's then known as his wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham obeyed. He did it. He got his family. He packed them up. I don't know if he got on a camel or if he walked or how he got there, but he made this trek all the way across the Fertile Crescent to the land that we know today as Israel. And God says to him when he gets there, he says, look, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. This is part of the promise now, part of the covenant. Verse 7 here, Genesis 12, 7, is the first land promise. And Everything, as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, unfurls from this one moment <laughs> when God says, I'll give you this land. Now, that God was going to bring about his kingdom, that he was going to restore the earth, I think is already in his mind from the moment that it falls. But how he's going to do that, there, it could have been different ways. And Abraham says, yes, I will go. And from then on, it's going to be Abraham and his descendants that are at the center of the action. Then we get to chapter 17. Let's go over to, to that chapter. And we read about the blood covenant. And now, verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. So here's where Abram gets renamed to Abraham, and it's kind of an ironic name because it means the father of many Gentiles, of many nations. And... Um, Typically, the, the name Abraham is associated with one nation, with the Jewish nation, and it's the father of uh, the Israelites or the Hebrews. But his name actually means the father of many nations. And in verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is an everlasting covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a big deal. It's not just something that's interesting to know. It's something that shapes history for centuries to come, millennia to come. And so God seals the covenant through blood, right? What blood, how does that work? Does anybody know what happens next? Circumcision, right. And so God seals the covenant through the blood of circumcision. And that is what becomes the sign of the covenant. So verse 8 here, I will give to you and your offspring after you in the, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. There it is again. To you and your offspring, I'm going to give you this land. God says to Abraham, and God said, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring." Verse 23, Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, who was a teenager, yikes, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he circumcised. He was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Verse 26, That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in his house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now look, that's faith. I know you, you say you have faith. I say I have faith. That's faith. I mean, can you imagine the conversation with Sarah later that day? Abraham comes home, and he's got his, his robe on, and uh, he says to his wife, Well, Sarah, there's something i got to tell you. And he, show, <laughs> he shows her what he just did. And she says, I mean, what would she say? I don't know. Abraham, what happened? He said, I did it myself. Or maybe he had Eliezer do it or something, right? And she said, why would you ever cut yourself? What's wrong with you? Right? Isn't that a normal response? Like, this is not a common practice yet. Did, did God tell you to do that to yourself? He says to her, well, it's not just me, honey. I did it to our, our you know, 13-year-old son, Ishmael, and every other male that lives here, I lined him up, and, you know, he's probably sat on a rock, and he used a, a flint uh, knife that probably wasn't sterilized or that sharp by our standards, and he did it. Now that is faith. Don't tell me you have faith. That's faith. Whatever we have, it's, it's, it might be like lowercase f faith. But this is capital F. You're taking a knife to the part of your body that you protect the most as a man. And you trust that what God says to you is going to work when you don't have good examples already of this being a normal practice, right? That's faith. That's really extreme. Totally unreasonable that God asked him to do this, by the way. Can you imagine Abraham's servants, right? And they're just like the people that watch the sheep and they're like, hey, Bildad, get over here. And he comes over and he's like, God told me I have to cut your, you know, foreskin off. And Bildad's like, I kind of like my foreskin, <laughs> you know, like, is there any wiggle room here? And Abraham's like, no, if you want to be in my house, you, we got to do this. And, you know, there's a, probably a line of men sitting there sore on the ground, <laughs> like, you're next. <laughs> I mean, can you just imagine that? It's just unbelievable. And yet he goes through with it. And that is the covenant. That's the covenant, the moment when blood is spilt, when God binds himself to Abraham, and Abraham binds himself to God, and together they make this radical step of commitment to each other. God says this is an everlasting, I mean, it's a big deal. It's an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants. Like, look, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with your people. This is the covenant. It involves trust. And can you imagine the first time they circumcise an eight-day-old baby. I mean, it's one thing when you're a 13-year-old Ishmael, right? Like, hey, he's probably going to live, right? But a baby, especially in, in ancient times when infant mortality was probably so high, right? And to, to take a knife to a baby, right? Yeah, but I think, I don't know what I can Why from till eight day? Because they don't feel anything. Well, I don't know if they don't feel anything, but they, the body heals better the eighth day than any other day because of the blood clotting mechanism. But they didn't know that. They're just like, all right, the baby's born. God says we're supposed to circumcise about the eighth day. I guess we're just going to do it. That's faith. That's radical trust in God. And that's what they did. And that's the legacy of this people. Look over in chapter 22, but it gets better. Can you imagine that it would get even deeper than that? That's a whole new meaning and some skin in the game. Some skin in the game. I'm so glad you're here, Josiah. Uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Look at the tenderness of that. 
speech. You know, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Our greatest temptation for idolatry is always our children. I believe that. Or your lover. Or your job. Probably those three. Right? Your career. Some people get obsessed with the career. And uh, as people, we're, we're prone to fall into idolatry, to worship some, someone else or something else other than God. And Abraham, God is saying to him, look, I want you to take your son, your son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, that's absolutely absurd. You can't ask somebody to do that. And yet that's what God does. Just like move when you're 75 to a place that you don't know. Cut your private parts when you're 99. And now the child's finally been born, which happened a year after he circumcised himself, by the way, which just, I mean, there's all kinds of like irony there. You know, for, for however many years, 99 years, he couldn't have any kids. Like he performed surgery on the part that makes kids. And now... <laughs> You can have a kid a year later. Not that Abraham was necessarily the problem here, but it's amazing that it worked out that way. And so now the child, I mean, can you imagine what a spoiled brat Isaac must have been? How his parents must have doted over him and given him everything he wanted. Oh, we just waited 100 years for you. No big deal. <laughs> you know, and how much Abraham must have loved his son and Sarah must have loved her son. And now God says to him, take your son, your only son whom you love. Of course, he does have Ishmael, but he had been sent away by now. And what I want you to do is kill him. Offer him to me. It's just, it's just inconceivable. And yet that's what God tells him to do. So Abraham rose, verse 3, early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And, the, you know, I don't know how he explained this to Sarah. It doesn't tell us, but, you know, it was something like, hey, I guess we're going to go and we're going to come back. Later on, when he, let's look at it, verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of his burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Boy, here, carry this. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. So maybe Abraham had a suspicion that God was going to raise him back to life or something, or somehow avert the whole situation, because he says, We're going to come back to you. Or maybe he was just saying that. I don't know. But, well, it says that in the New Testament. Yeah. That, that, yeah, through faith he did it, right? And then comes this horrifying moment when he ties up his son, it's a famous painting here, and he takes out the knife, and everything is talk until the knife comes out. Everything's just like, yeah, I'm going to do what you say, God, yada, 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 we're here, I can still not do this. And the moment the knife comes out, and he holds his boy down, and he lifts that knife into the sky, gleaming in the sun. That's the moment when Abraham is committed. That's the moment. And then, of course, as soon as God sees that commitment, he says to the angel, you better stop this thing. <laughs> and that's verse 11 there. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That is the moment. It's called the Akedah. You ever heard that way of calling it? I think it's uh, Hebrew for binding. The binding of Isaac. The most tempting idol. Is God your source of satisfaction, or is it your, your, your son on whom you have laid all your hopes and dreams for the future? What's your source of satisfaction, Abraham? What are you living for? What if it died? Could you not go on living another day without? That's what God is forcing him to struggle with and wrestle with here. And Abraham says to God, whatever you say, I'm going to do. I'm going to have radical trust in you, radical faith in you. I'm committed to you 100%. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm committed to you 100%. 
I mean, it's and God never asked anybody to do that again, ever, before or after. It's just Abraham, just that time, and Abraham proved, I think he proved something to God. Because if you think about God's history with humans up to the time of Abraham, it's pretty miserable. I mean, you have Enoch, he was good, right? And then Noah was like good, and then not really, and then, you know, I mean, Noah's complicated. But how many humans, how many people just like didn't work with God? I mean, the world had become full of violence, and people are worshiping idols already. Abraham shows God something about humanity. The Abrahamic faith is absolutely staggering. I mean, it's not, it's not some sort of like trite, oh, he believed in, in you know, the story of Santa Claus. You know, you, told, you tell the kid the story of Santa Claus and they, and they believe in, that Santa Claus comes down the chimney, right? I mean, that's just, there's, there's nothing admirable about being gullible, right? Abraham's not gullible. Like you said, Josiah, he has skin in the game. He's moved, he's believed, and now he's offering not his own skin, but the skin of his son. I mean, this is a radical trust that God is good and that what God wants him to do is the best. And so I think in this moment, he begins to redeem the human race in God's eyes, uh, that he shows God that we're capable of genuine loyalty and that going forward, this is just so, well, look at verse uh, 16 here. And said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. God swears to God. Right? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, if you not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And, 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 it, and it goes on from there. Right? God is so impressed with Abraham's obedience that what God does is he swears by himself. I think it's, there's a kind of poetic beauty that the first real act of faith like this was mimicked by God to bring salvation to the world because, you know, he yeah. actually followed through with it and did sacrifice his own son. Right, right. And, and God did actually sacrifice his own son. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there are all kinds of layers here. It makes me wonder how if Isaac ever trusted his father again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Hard to say what the aftermath was. Isaac, to, to, be, to be honest, I think Isaac was kind of a dud. You know, when you see him later on with his sons and he's blind and, you know, he's just, he's just like whatever. I mean, Jacob has this whole story, right? Jacob was a, a supplanter and he's a conniver and he's a mama's boy and he doesn't really care about his blind father's feelings or, you know, and then, but then he, Jacob gets Jacobed by Laban. And then he, you know, he comes to an understanding and he wrestles with the angel, right? And, and he, he becomes a man of great faith. He gets renamed Israel. But like Isaac doesn't have a story like that. Isaac's just like, ah, you know, the, uh, the story about him getting his wife, right? So anyhow. I'm wondering about what was the reaction, Sarah's reaction? Yeah, who knows what her reaction was. Well, they might not have told her. <laughs> they got home. How was the sacrifice? Oh, it was fine. <laughs> What'd you offer? It was a ram. How'd you find it? It was caught in a thicket. <laughs> God provided. Yeah, we never doubted him. <laughs> Isaac gets home. He's like, can I go to my room? <laughs> yes, he sneaks out the window. You know. All right, so here's, here's what's so incredible about Abraham. <laughs> this is like almost too, it's like almost hard to say. Going forward from this moment, God is so bound to this man that God uses the name of Abraham to identify himself henceforth. Later, think about it. Later on, God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, and he says to him, who are you? He says, I'm the God of your father. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? God calls himself by the name of Abraham. That's incredible if you think about it. This is the almighty creator of bees and protons, and the hydrologic cycle. And he's saying, yeah, I'm the God of Abraham. That's who I am. Yeah, that's me. I'm the God of Abraham. And you see it throughout scripture. I mean, what an honor. Today, in the world, in the 21st century, half, one out of every two people on the planet 
claims Abraham as the founder of their faith. Half. That's all, and that's mostly Muslims and Christians combined. You get over um, three and a half billion people. 3,000 years later, now that's a legacy. 3,000 years later, half of the world population says, yeah, Abraham's a big deal. You imagine that? That would be in the year 5,000, half the world saying, Talon, yeah, he's, he's, I'm pretty much with him. Talon Paul, yeah, he, he changed the world. And I might disagree with the other Talonites out there, but we're, we all agree that Talon was awesome, right? And uh, so Abraham is the father of the faith. Imagine that, half the population. In Exodus, let, let's flip over to Exodus chapter 2. The Abrahamic covenant is not just something that affects Abraham. It doesn't just affect Isaac. It doesn't just affect Jacob. It doesn't just affect the 12 tribes of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, it has an after story, and it continues to shape how God deals with his people. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So when it comes time to deliver them from Egypt, the starting point for that is when God says, I remember the covenant I made. Originally with Abraham, but then confirmed with Isaac and Jacob. In chapter 6, when God is coaching Moses and trying to build his faith that this operation rescue from Pharaoh is actually going to work, God says to him in uh, Exodus 6.3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. And in verse 4, I also established my covenant to give them the land. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. This is all part of the Abrahamic covenant. So God doesn't forget. That's the great thing about God when God makes a promise. God doesn't die. God's eternal. So like, he's the only one who can fulfill the terms of an everlasting covenant. And so that's what he begins to do. Even in chapter 32, flip over to Exodus 32, verse 13. We read about the golden calf incident. A real low point for Israel in the wandering of the wilderness, right? A real low point. They had worshipped a golden calf that they had made themselves and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's what Aaron said. God says to Moses, Let me destroy them. I'm just, these people are no good. Let me get rid of them. I'll start over with you. You remember this? So then in verse 13, Exodus 32, 13, Moses says to God, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken to bring on his people. The most effective prayer is when you use God's words in it, right? It's one thing to pray for what you want, right? But then if you remind God of what God has already said, that's the most powerful prayer. And look, it worked. God doesn't call Moses up and say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What's your opinion? He says, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. And Moses is like, whoa, hold on a second. They are knuckleheads. I agree. But remember your covenant with Abraham. And this is hundreds of years later that God is still binding himself to Abraham to honor that covenant. And so he turns away. And then we start to see a bit of the after story as well in the Psalms. Let's see here. Psalm 105 Go ahead and write that down. Tells this incredible story of God and his people. In verse 6 we read, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. You see that? He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance when they were few in number. 
So this is the covenant God had made with his people. And then we pick it up in verse 36. We read, He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the, fr the first fruits of all their strength. Who's that talking about? Yeah. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold. So that was Egypt. And then he brought them out with silver and gold. And there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Verse 38, Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Right? So this psalm is written a good deal of time later. But how do Israelites remind and talk about their own history? They talk about it in reference to Abraham in reference to what happened with Abraham and the covenant, how God bound himself to Abraham and his descendants for all time and how he's still with them. And when times are tough, they press into that even more. Uh, one, one of the words that you see a lot and is bound up with this whole idea of covenant, I don't know if you're already familiar with this word or not, probably are, but it's the word hesed. I think it's spelled like this in Hebrew, if you are curious. But it's the word translated in the ESV, steadfast love. The NASB translates it loving kindness, which is, I don't think, an English word. And I think those are two English words. And then the King James translated it mercy. It's an interesting word, and it's really, really an important word, especially when it comes to covenant. This is from John Golden Gay's commentary on the Psalms, Volume 3. He, he writes, Chesed is the commitment. English versions translate Chesed by expressions such as steadfast love and constant love. It is sometimes described as covenant love, though in the Old Testament it rarely appears in the company of the word covenant. It is used in two connections. When someone makes an act of commitment for which there is no reason in terms of prior relationship, and when someone keeps their commitment when they might be expected to abandon it, for example, because the other person has done so, it is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek agapi, or love. It's bound up with this whole idea of commitment. You see that? It's when someone keeps their commitment when they might be expected to abandon it, and it's when someone makes an act of commitment for which there is no reason in terms of prior relationship. So whether we're talking about the initial establishment of a commitment or keeping a commitment when the other side is not being true, that's this word chesed, which we see throughout our Bibles is one of the biggest words in the entire Old Testament, steadfast love. And it's the idea of covenant faithfulness, the idea that God is above all else faithful to his covenant, even when the people are knuckleheads, right? Even when they, they shouldn't be given this credit. And this word shows up all throughout the Psalms and all throughout uh, other important places. For example, the eight attributes of God, right? What, what's that? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. How does that go? Does anybody remember that? The Lord, the Lord... Compassionate. Oh, come on. Put that away. Ha have you not been a student at the Atlanta Bible College? Have, not, have you not taken a Dr. Joe Martin course? Compa no, get, get out of there. You're not looking at that. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, right? Abundant in loving kindness. Ah. Loving kindness. Chesed. Abundant in steadfast love. And true. Maintaining steadfast love. Even in his own eight, eight attributes, God mentions this Hebrew word twice. It's so bound up in his nature and who he is. And we see that in the covenant of Abraham. And then in a second, we'll look at that in the covenant of David as well. Because we also do need to cover that 
in this lecture. So for us, so I'll bring up Hesed again as, as time goes on. But for us, how does the Abrahamic covenant relate? Because we're not descended from Abraham, at least I'm not. And uh, so, so why are we talking about this 3,000, 4,000 years later, right? What, what is the significance of this to us today? That we find in Galatians chapter 3. So let's flip over there. Galatians 3, 27 to 29 tells us about the Abrahamic covenant and how it relates to us today. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the punchline. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And look, Christ is the doorway. Christ is the connecting tissue, the uh, to use a birth analogy, the umbilical cord that connects us to Abraham, right? Without Christ, we're severed. We're just one of these other nations, one of these Gentiles, one of these idol worshipers, one of these pagans, right? But with Christ, when we come to Christ, he is the quintessential descendant of Abraham. He is the seed that everything else was going towards, the ultimate Abrahamic person. And so because we're associated with Christ through baptism, Christ associates us with Abraham and the promises God made to Abraham, which is a pretty big deal to be grafted into those awesome promises and this legacy of a people that have been dealing with God for all this time. The other text that relates to this is Romans 4.13. I could just read it to you. You write, Just go ahead and write it down. Romans 4.13, which says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Romans 4.13 tells us that his promise, and again, this is something that you see as you read through the scriptures, is not, and we'll, we'll see this going forward, but it's not just that narrow strip of land about the size of what, New Jersey? I mean, it's not just Canaan or Israel, right? That's not just what God promises to Abraham. God expands it over the years. And ultimately, by the time we get to Romans 4.13, we read that the promise is that he would be the heir of the world. That Abraham and the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, who through the righteousness of faith or through their commitment, just like Abraham's commitment, would be the inheritors of this new world or this regeneration. All right, we're going to switch gears now and take a look at David, right? This lecture is Kingdom Covenants, and we're covering Abraham and David, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. So now we go to David, and we look at the King Promise. And the only way to do that is to go to 2 Samuel. So that's what we're going to do. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now David is a descendant of Abraham, right? And he lives about a thousand years later, give or take. David is now on his throne. He's already dealt with all the uh, struggle with Saul. And now he is at peace. He's achieved a point in his life when he is the king on his throne, and he's at peace. And he has a house in Jerusalem. And that's verse 1 here. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord God had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house? To dwell in? You know, look at David's concern for God. Right? It's like, I live in a house, but God doesn't live in a house. God lives in a tent. Why should I live in a house and God live in a tent? I mean, it's a beautiful heart. It really shows you the heart of this man of God. He's not just selfishly content with the military prowess that he has as a soldier and as somebody who has defeated his enemies. He's concerned about God's honor. He's like, look, I have a higher honored 
dwelling than God does. This is not right. God needs a house. God says, you're going to build me a house? I'm the universe maker. You're going to make, that's cute. You're going to make me a house, David. I don't think so. Verse 11, from that time, it got, this is basically God's first point is, I haven't complained about the tent. Verse, <laughs> verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I've been living in this tent, right? And the rest of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Hello. God is going to make David a house. And this is the important part here. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his what? His throne or his kingdom, right? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for a thousand years. Does your Bible really say that? Is anybody reading this? It says for what? Forever. Forever. Does not say for a thousand years, for the record. He shall build a house and uh, for my name, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my chesed, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In case you didn't hear the last time I said forever. <laughs> Saul really missed out. Saul really missed out. Saul, when I think of Saul, he's a weak man. He's a people pleaser. And if the people said, hey, we're going to we're going to save these animals alive. And God said, kill the animals. Saul said, well, you know, the people do have a point here. Right? And uh, he, he went with the people. He, he didn't have that gritty trust of Abraham in his soul. He just didn't have it. When push came to shove, he would always just go with what's popular, what's going to make him or enable him to win friends and influence people. That's what he wanted. Whereas David... David suffers in a cave, in cold, trembling, in agony and in starvation, year after year after year, because he won't put a hand on God's anointed. Right? That's a little bit different character between these two. Not that David's perfect. I mean, David really messed up later on. But at this time in his life, right, David is on point with God. And God, this is one of these rare moments in Scripture, like with Abraham that we looked at, where God says, I choose you. I, I want to work with you. I want to, I want to bind myself once again to you and to your descendants, to be your God and to establish your throne. David, it's you and it's your descendants. You look at Israel, you know, after the split, there's Israel and there's Judah. Israel has a dynasty shift every so many generations. It goes from Jeroboam, and then eventually it, his family gets killed off. It goes to Jehu, right? And then it goes to Omri. You know, there are these different, it's not a straight lineage. With Judah, it is a straight lineage from, from D to Z. Not from A to Z, but from D to Z. From David to Zedekiah, you have all these descendants of David. So God says he's going to establish his kingdom forever. <laughs> I love David's heart. God, I want to build you a house. I want to give you honor. And God's like, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to establish. I mean, you read, and we're not going to do it now, but you read David's response. He's like, who am I? And what is my house that you would give me this incredible promise for the future? And God says, look, this is Hesed, baby. This is a covenant. I'm sticking to it. You're going to die. Just like all you people die. But God's still going to be there, and He is the only one capable of true chesed, right? Century after century after century of steadfast faithfulness to that covenant and love. So that's what ends up happening here. God's going to establish His kingdom. He will build a house for my name. God's going to establish His throne forever. We could call this... Um, the descendant promise, right? He promises to David that he's going to have a descendant. And from this prophecy, it's not at all clear that this is talking about a single person. And it's not at all clear that it's not talking about Solomon, 
right? Because Solomon is his immediate descendant that actually does build this house, right? So let's deal with that first. Did this refer to Solomon? I think to some degree, yeah, it did. But Solomon also failed in a really big way. Uh, flip over to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Solomon failed. He did build the temple. That's true. Solomon did build God's house. But then he also married 700 wives and 300 concubines. And in the process of doing that, he built them shrines to their own gods. And he started practicing idolatry. And Solomon, it's, it's like hard to even believe that such a, a person with such a good start would, towards the end of his life, introduce child sacrifice in Israel. Worship of the god Moloch, where you pass your children through the fire to kill them in honor of the god. And so Solomon ends up failing. He builds shrines for all these women, his wives and his concubines. He introduces child sacrifice. And you look at David's descendants, right? I mean, you got after Solomon, who's the next king? Anybody know? Rehoboam, right? Boa. Rehoboam, he's, he's a, a political disaster, right? You know, the uh, people come to him and they say to him, you know, your dad's yoke was really heavy on us. Can you, can you do anything? Can you make it easier for us? And Rehoboam asks the old men, he's like, what should I say? And they're like, yeah, just, yeah, make it easier for him. Unity is more important than getting the, the 10 tribes mad at you. And then he asks his friends down on, down on the corner, and he says, well, what do you think I should do? People his own age, and they said, oh, you, you, you've got to establish your strength, right? And so he goes with his buddies, and he says to these delegates, he says, my little pinky is thicker than my father's loins. If he, if he hits you with whips, I'll hit you with scorpions, you know, moron. So he loses the 10 tribes. That's his first act, is to completely lose half of the kingdom. Total disappointment. Rehoboam. And then uh, after him, you have these other kings. Uh, maybe Rehoboam did some good things too. I don't know. But like that one incident really sticks out to me. You have all these other kings, right? You have um, a couple of good ones, right? Asa was pretty good. He died of athlete's foot. That's sad. Jehoshaphat, he was good. And then you had, you know, Hezekiah, Josiah, best king ever, right? But then you have just mostly bad kings in between there, right? And you get a sense that like, this isn't the descendant. This isn't the, the, the promised descendant who's going to be established in, in the throne and, and he's going to be the son of God and God's going to be his father and, and all the rest. You look at the history of the kings of Israel and of Judah and you think to yourself, there's something missing here. It's just not really living up to what we would hope it would be. And then the trauma, the central trauma of the Old Testament occurs. Babylon arrives and they destroy the kingdom. And how they do it is, is a bit grotesque. This is 2 Kings 25, verse 6. Then they captured the king, this is Zedekiah, the last king of Judah on David's throne, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him, and they killed the future. Right? They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Last thing you ever see is the slaughter of your own sons. And it's not just like anybody watching the slaughter of their own sons. I can't even imagine how traumatizing that would be. But especially if you are the Davidic king and your sons are the future of the nation. Which is, of course, why the king of Babylon did that. To uh, dash to pieces any hope of revival. Right. And so at this moment, Zedekiah is the last Davidic king. People start asking the question, is, is this it? You know, of God, what, what about this promise you made to David? And that's where Psalm 89 comes in. People are living in a foreign land. They're in Babylon. They're, and they're asking the question, God, where is your promise? Where is your hesed? You know, you, we read about your hesed. We hear stories about your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness. Where is it? We don't see it. I'm in this foreign land dealing with these people that don't respect our customs. You know, they're worshiping Marduk and these other bizarro gods. 
bell and the dragon and all this other stuff. Your house is in shambles. It's destroyed. Does this mean that your covenant has, has just hit the ground? Right? That your, that your covenant is just, it's just done? That's the question they're asking in Psalm 89. Look at uh, verse 1 there. Oh, what's, what's uh, crazy about Psalm 89 is it starts really happy. I should mention that. And then later on you find out that this is somebody in Babylon in incredible pain. <laughs> and yet they still start with, I will sing of the Hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You see how he's like really building up this whole Hesed idea. It's like, yeah, God is a God of Hesed. He's a God of steadfast love. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God of covenant commitment. And he starts talking about and praising God for a bit. And then we get down to verse 19, and we see some information about the Davidic covenant here. Verse 19, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly ones. So this is somebody after this whole thing is passed. He's looking back on it, saying, as of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one. I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. Verse 21, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. I mean, you see like how he's remembering the Davidic covenant. Like, God, you established his covenant with David. You said you were going to be with David. You were going to bind yourself to him. You were going to, your arm was going to strengthen him. He's going to crush the foes in verse 23. Verse 24, my faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him and his name shall be exalted, right? Verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God the rock of my salvation. This is beautiful retelling of the Davidic covenant. And it's, these are all the elements of the Davidic covenant. He's going to establish his throne. He's going to be with him. He's going to protect him from his enemies. And he's going to be a father to him. He's going to be a son. This is a Davidic psalm, a psalm remembering the Davidic covenant. Verse 30, he goes on. He continues to elaborate about the Davidic covenant. So if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. That's what it said before, right? In 2 Samuel. Do you remember that? But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. There you go again. Chesed, faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. This is what the psalmist is saying God said. This is like the Moses prayer. You're saying, God, you said you weren't going to violate. You said you had a hesed. I want to see your hesed. Show me your hesed. I will not violate my covenant, verse 34. I will not alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your Messiah, your anointed, your kings. <laughs> so that's where he's at. He starts to explain his situation a little bit. Verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. That's what we just read about Zedekiah, right? The crown is in the dust. The future is gone. And then I'm not going to read this whole psalm. It's long, it's beautiful, and it's magnificent. You should read it, but let's go to 49, okay? Lord, where is your chesed? Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it, God? Show me it. Show me your hesed. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock. O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed, then he ends. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. <laughs> this psalmist does not think Solomon fulfilled the Davidic covenant. Do you see my point? Look, if you thought Solomon was the fulfillment, why are you all these hundreds of years later, after Zedekiah is dead, asking God, God, where's your covenant? Where's your, where's your covenant? You promised a descendant on the throne. 
right? If you thought Solomon had already fulfilled that completely, you wouldn't still be asking about it all this time later. Look, this, this person is praying this prayer. They're using everything they've got at their disposal to convince and sway the heart of God to act to bring them back to the land. They're not holding back anything. And they believe that this is the most effective way to do that, is to bring up, even though it might have been 400 years earlier, he's bringing up the covenant of David. And he's like, God, you made a covenant with David. Where is that covenant? Let's go. Let's see the Hesed. Show me the Hesed. That's what he's doing. Now, go to uh, Luke chapter 1, please. Luke chapter 1. The story continues. They do return from exile. You know that, right? They return from exile. How long were they in exile in Babylon? 70 years. 70 years, right? That 70-year trauma is the central trauma of the Old Testament. I said that, right? So once they get back from exile, they're not really in charge of themselves. Now they're living under the Persian Empire. So they're serving the Persian kings. And then you know who comes along? The Greek Empire. And now they're serving the Greek kings, first of which is Alexander the Great. And eventually, they fight a war of independence in the uh, second century before Christ, around 176. Yeah, the Maccabean Revolt. And they established what's called the Hasmonean Dynasty. Now, the Hasmoneans, starting with Mattathias, Judah the Maccabees' father, okay? So Mattathias, then you have Judah, then Simon, and then John, and then uh, it goes on from there. I don't remember all the names. But there was a dynasty that was home rule, where Israel was ruling itself. But they were not Davidic. They were Levites. They were of the tribe of Levi. They were priests that ruled. And then under John Hyrcanus, he established himself as king. So they were priest kings that ruled during that time before Christ. But 63 years before Christ, the Romans came and took over Israel and made it part of the Roman province. And they renamed it Judea. That's where you get Ju Judea is not anywhere in the Old Testament. It's always Judah. But once the Romans come in, they conquer it. Now it's called Judea because that's the way Latin people say Judah. That didn't cost any extra. All right. So by the time of Christ, what are people saying? People are saying, this Davidic covenant, yeah, there were kings. The, the kings lasted about four centuries. But that was six centuries ago since the last one fell of the Davidic kings. Now, there had been these Hasmonean kings during the Maccabean period, right? But they weren't Davidic, right? And there, some Jews had left. They were like, hey, we, we, can't, we can't subscribe to this. You know, the Essenes, they left. They're like, we, we don't want to have anything to do with this corrupt temple system and this corrupt king who's not a son of David. He should not be on the throne. And this corrupt priesthood that's not from the descendants of Zadok. And, 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 and there was turmoil, a lot of turmoil. And so by the time of Jesus, they're starting to ask the question, is all hope lost? Has God's covenant with David shattered on the floor like a clay pot? That's the kind of question that I would imagine a lot of Israelites in the time of Jesus living under Roman rule are asking, is it over God's covenant to David? And then we read in Luke chapter 1, this moment where Gabriel, the angel, comes to this Jewish peasant named Mary. And suddenly the silence is broken. And something that had fallen to the wayside for six centuries, you know, from 586 BC up until the, this is the time of Christ here, right, when Mary's about to conceive him, you have all that time, there's no Davidic king. And God sends an angel, Gabriel. I, 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 w I wish I could see, like, sit in on that, like, Gabriel, it's time. Go. go. Go tell her. Go speak to her. Go talk about David. Go talk about the covenant. I haven't forgotten. I mean, can you imagine like, what that commissioning was like? Gabriel's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> it comes on down. and Who knows what Gabriel looked like? Probably didn't look like a beam of light, but that's the painting I found. So 
little sci-fi action there. Luke 1.26, In the sixth month, the, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, probably nobody ever heard of, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Look at that, of the house of David. I love that. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor, when the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father, David. All this time later, God breaks the silence and he chooses another person and he binds himself to her and he says, look, your son is going to inherit the throne of David. What do you mean, God? The Romans are in charge. There is no throne of David. There hasn't been a throne of David for over five centuries. Well, maybe that kind of explains the miraculous birth a little bit. Like he needed to convince people that this was really going to happen. I don't know. But he says in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob for a thousand years. You guys are all supposed to say no when I do that. No, Sean, it doesn't say a thousand years. Do you, is anyone in verse 33? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. In case you didn't know what forever meant, it means no end. All right. And so what God is promising through this angel, through Gabriel, is that God's promise to David all those centuries before, a millennia before Christ, that promise ultimately is going to find its fulfillment on her son. That's big. We call this the Annunciation. It's where God announces who Jesus is going to be. And so when we flip over to the New Testament, we read the first verse of the first book of the New Testament. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And who? what are the two names? The son of David, the son of Abraham. You can't understand Jesus without these two. I know people try. But you can't understand Jesus without understanding the Abrahamic covenant, knowing that Abraham was that one person who said to God, I trust you, I'm committed to you. And God says, I'm going to work with you, Abraham, and your descendants. I'm going to give you this land. And then in the time of David, God says, you're going to have a descendant, and he's going to rule over the land. And finally, it all narrows down to this moment when we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. At long last, the thing that happens is we, we read like the Annunciation, for example, in Luke 1, 26 to 32. And we see words like Jacob and Israel and the house and the throne. And we're just like, oh, those are nice words. This will fit nicely in my Christmas play. You know? <laughs> and we don't realize... Like, these are fireworks going off. There was, there was silence on this issue. Not like God didn't speak on anything. Like, he was obviously very active in every generation. But on this issue, that psalmist in Psalm 89 did not get their answer. I mean, they, yeah, they came back to the land. But they didn't get that throne of David restored. The throne of David was never restored. And finally, with Mary, the promise is, is made. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. At long last, David's promise is fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David, who will rule on the throne forever. And then how does the New Testament end? You look at the, so this is the beginning of the New Testament, the first book, first chapter, first verse. Let me introduce you to Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. That's Jesus. And then how does it end? This isn't the very last verse, but this is from the last chapter where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus identifies himself by this descendant of David, this Davidic covenant. Jesus thinks of himself that way. It's a big deal. I think I say that a lot. It's a big deal. But I guess that's because I believe it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and learned something. 
I wanted to read out a couple of quick comments before closing out this podcast. Both of them come from Offscript 29, Dealing with Doubt, on which Josh says, quote, because you never ran up the stairs, end quote. Rose is a boss soprano. Very insightful and animated podcast. Love it. Josh, I can honestly say that that is the most enthusiastic comment we have ever received here at Restitutio. And um, I agree with you that Rose is a boss soprano. I don't even know what that means, but yeah, it seems like it fits. So thanks for that feedback. The comment he's referring to, because you never ran up the stairs, is where Rose was comparing... A, an overconfidence in our faith with an overconfidence in our fitness. And she says, well, you can sit there and say, I'm so fit, but as soon as you run up the stairs, your heart's pounding, you're out of breath, you find out the truth about it. And so it is with our Christian faith that as soon as somebody calls it into question and inspires any kind of doubt, then we find out how spiritually fit we are. Secondly, Paul Peterson writes, thank you for another stimulating podcast. I won't go into it all here, but had it not been for the role doubt has played in my life, it's unlikely I would even be one of your regular listeners. This episode triggered something I've pondered for a long time. I like to think of faith as being blind, but not deaf. What I mean is that faith isn't merely a blind leap in the dark, but it is a blind leap. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. It would be sight. One of the differences between presumption and faith is that faith is a leap based on what God has said. When my kids were younger, I tried to illustrate this to them by having them sit on the top of their bunk bed one at a time. I asked them if they thought I was strong enough to catch them if they jumped. Of course, they were sure I was. Then I said, what if I asked you to close your eyes and then said, jump and I'll catch you? Would you do it? Sure, daddy. Okay. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Can you see me? No. But you can still hear me, and you can tell by my voice that I'm down here ready to catch you, right? Yes. A little more quietly. Now, I don't want you to peek, okay? Okay. Pause, and then slowly. Christy, without opening your eyes, I want you to jump into my arms. I promise I will catch you. After just a bit of hesitation on her part, It was thrilling to see my little girl demonstrate her trust in my promise and my strength by taking the short, blind leap into my arms. On a small scale, that's the faith of Abraham. Wow, Paul, that (laughs) was quite an analogy there. Really cool to see how faith works in action, that there is always this uncertainty, but at the same time, there are good reasons as well. Thanks for writing that. If you'd like to listen to this Offscript episode, it's Offscript 29, Dealing with Doubt. I highly recommend it. And if you would like to add your voice to the mix, come on to restitudio.org and you can find today's episode on the Kingdom Covenants, episode 85. And you can leave a comment there as well. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.